All right. My sound man is here, so he's able to fix my microphones for me. Thank you, Brother Joe. Uh, Joe, grab a bulletin for you. Go out if you can today. It, on the back table, it's got the whole schedule, including I announced we're coming to your house. So that means we're coming now, okay? No turning back. Our main text this morning will be in Matthew chapter 22. As always, we'll have the verses on the screen so you can follow along. But if you're like me, I like to open my Bible to the main text and then look up at the other selected ones on the screen. So that's up to you. But we're going to go ahead and read these six verses together. Then we'll have a brief word of prayer and we'll launch into this morning's message. Matthew 22 and verse 34. The word of God says, But when the Pharisees had heard that he put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Verse 35. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray you'd be with the next few minutes. I pray that you'd help me, Lord, to stick to what you've given me. I pray that I wouldn't say anything you don't want me to say this morning, but if you want me to say it, that it would come out in the course of preaching your word. I pray that you would help me now, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Help me without prejudice or agenda to look to the text and be able to say with confidence, thus saith the Lord. Be with those who have chosen to be here to worship you today. I pray you would help us not to have our mind dwelling on distractions or discouragements, but that you would help us to listen, that we could be fed from the word of God, not from me, but from your words. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus had been answering many questions in this chapter. And as we referenced last week, Jesus always came out on top. Sometimes he answered their question with a question. At one point, it says that Jesus showed them up and befuddled the questioners so much that it says from that time forward, they durst ask Jesus no more questions because he could not be defeated when it came to this back and forth because he was God. So if you tried to question Jesus with the goal of trapping him or making him look bad, you were definitely fighting a losing battle. They had said to him, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? And he said, if Caesar's pictures on the money, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things to God that are God's. They asked him about a hypothetical of a woman who had been married and had seven different husbands, I think brothers, and they all kept dying one by one. And they said, who then in the resurrection will she be married to? And Jesus had to let them know in the resurrection they don't marry, they're not given in marriage, but are like the angels of God, which were in heaven. Near the end of the chapter, a lawyer comes and asks him this question, which I believe would be more likened to a scribe or someone who in the Jewish synagogue would be tasked with looking at the law, interpreting what it had to say. They ask him something that according to some was a hotly debated topic among the Pharisees and among the Jews of the synagogue, which if you know anything about them, you know they loved to debate. You know they loved to come up with an argument and a new rule for everything. And they said to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus referenced Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 to give the greatest commandment in all of the law. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So, contained in all the volumes of commandments of the law, Christ did not point to giving of your money. He didn't point to prayer. He didn't point to anything that we do, rather than to say love. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And if we love God and obey the first and great commandment, it will lead us to obeying the second commandment, which is loving others, and also fulfilling all the commands of the law, and that God would give us in this age and dispensation, not out of a sense of earning our own righteousness, but out of love. Because if we love God, we will want to keep the laws that God has given us. Jesus then added the second great commandment, which he was not asked about. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So then what Jesus said, out of all of the law, and all of the rules, and all of the regulations, there's two things that if you could get them down, you would be in harmony on the rest of that. And it came down very simply to love God and love people. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love Him first. Love Him most. And then love others around you and treat them in the same way that you would want to be treated. And you'll be okay from there on out if you can truly keep those two principles. That's the slogan or catchphrase or leading headline on church website after church website. Loving God and loving people. That's the slogan. And it comes from scripture. And that really is what Christianity is all about. Many churches pick a different theme for each and every year. And I'll never forget seeing how in January of 2020 on Vision Sunday, church after church said, it's 2020 vision. In the year 2020, here's our vision for all the new ministries we're going to start and the meetings we're going to have and the conferences and the growth. And then a couple months later, everything was canceled. And we may have vision, but it's really up to the Lord what's going to happen or what's not going to happen. But that church slogan or theme may seem like we've heard it so much that it doesn't really land. But it is true that if we love God and love others, that's the first step towards being right with God. Both commands center around love. First love God, then love people. We're going to focus today on this verse 39. The second is like unto it. Jesus said, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So let me kind of state my thesis for this verse and the sermon and the aspect of it I want to focus on today. Then I'll spend a little bit of time developing that and trying to sort of defend myself from what the thesis is and the possible misapplications of it. I believe that in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine there is an implicit assumption in what Christ says. The implicit assumption is that we do all love ourselves in the sense of meaning we are naturally built and naturally wired to want to look out for our own interest, to care for our own needs, and to believe that we are worthy of doing so, to believe that we have value. And as a child of God, we should have a sense of self, of our identity, and of our value that is rooted in what Scripture says and the way that God says He loves us that leads us to looking at ourselves as worthy of value and having our needs met. And if that view that comes naturally to us as humans 
is distorted or wrong, it will affect the way we care for ourselves and the way that we love others. Okay? Now, this will not be a sermon that tells you you just need to love yourself more. You rock. The answers are within you. Just take some more me time. Look inside and you will find all you need. As a matter of fact, you may in the future hear someone rebuke messages that would tell us to love ourselves, or to say that the main point of this verse is to love ourselves more than anything else, and then that will allow us to be a good Christian. And to that certain extent, I would agree with what they are saying. If the focus gets out of balance, if we read Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine and say, the whole point is I'm supposed to love me and celebrate me no matter how I am or where I'm at. And as a matter of fact, churches are full of preachers who will tell people, love yourself, be self-empowered. You possess the power to live a successful life, meaning by their definition quite often, health, wealth, and prosperity. You have all the answers you need to be successful. Just donate to our ministry over a certain amount, and then God will give it back to you, and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that in the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And then goes on to say all those other sins that come out of the point of loving yourself. And Paul rebukes that idea and says that in the last days, men shall be lovers of their own selves. And Paul also says in Romans chapter 12, 3, I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So that I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but having a proper view of God, my love to God, having a proper view of myself, God's love towards me, and the value that he places upon me leads me to a place not of selfishness, of saying, well, I just need more spa retreats, and it's all about me, love me, love me. It leads us to a place of sacrificially serving others and loving them and caring for them, looking at myself and saying, here's all the needs that I have, the way that I try to look out for myself, and I'm going to try to look out for other people in that exact same way. So let me begin by giving you the other side a little bit. That warning against looking at Matthew 22, 39 and trying to take away the main message of love yourself. Let me give you the main interpretation of this verse. Charles Spurgeon said on this verse, How high then is love thy neighbor as thyself? The gospel standard? How much does a man love himself? None of us too little, some of us too much. Thou mayest love thyself as much as thou pleasest, but take care that thou lovest thy neighbor as much. I am certain thou needest no exhortation to love thyself. Thine own case will be seen to. Thine own comfort will be a very primary theme of thine anxiety. Thou wilt line thine own nest well with downy feathers, if thou canst. There is no need to exhort thee to love thyself. That wilt thou do well enough. Well then, as much as thou lovest thyself, love thy neighbor. That is, I believe the primary interpretation of this verse is not that we need to be told most of the time to love ourselves, but that the implicit assumption Christ is making is that when I look at my life, my family, and the decisions I make, I want to make sure that I come out on top. I want to do well for myself and my own. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Christ says, then take that exact same sense that you naturally feel about yourself, preserving yourself, getting ahead, loving yourself, and love your neighbor the same way. And that's a very difficult thing to do. 
I'll give you very quickly here, if you'll stay with me, some selected commentaries. Bible Ref says about this passage, the second greatest commandment assumes an obvious fact of human nature, that human beings naturally love and care for themselves. This perspective is the basis for what has come to be known as the golden rule. Jesus taught this in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 1 and 2. And it helps to explain what it means to love another as we love ourselves. Matthew seven twelve. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So if we go to treat someone in a certain way, we should ask that ourselves the question, since we were taught this as a child, would I want to be treated this way? And if the answer is no, then we're supposed to die to ourselves and treat the other as we would want to be treated. That comes directly from the teachings of Christ, from the expositor's Greek Testament. As thou shouldest love thyself, so as to cherish toward him, no less than toward thyself. That love which God would have thee to feel and to act toward him by promoting his welfare in such a manner that your conduct may be in accordance with this loving spirit. Love must do away with the distinction between I and thou. That's what the love of Christ does. It did it for us. And when we apply that same love of God to others around us, it leads us to do away with the distinction between me and between you and between my decision making being what puts me ahead of you and rather asking, what would Christ have me to do in this situation? Let me love my neighbor, whether my neighbor's nice or whether he's mean, as much as I love myself and love them like Jesus did, like Jesus does. Our neighbor, of course, meaning not just the person who lives across the street from us, but those whom we know, those whom we interact with on a daily basis. One more passage of commentary here from John Gill. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, as heartily and sincerely, and as a man would desire to be loved by his neighbor, and do all the good offices to him, he would choose to have done to himself by him. This law supposes that men should love themselves or otherwise they cannot love their neighbor. Not in a sinful way, by indulging themselves in carnal lust and pleasures. Some are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, but in a natural way, so as to be careful of their bodies, families, and estates. And in a spiritual way, so as to be concerned for their souls and the everlasting happiness of them. And in like manner, men should love their neighbors in things temporal and do to them all the good they can and do no injury to their persons or property. And in things spiritual, pray for them, instruct them, and advise as they would their own souls or their nearest and dearest relations. And as this is to be extended to every man, though the Jews were restraining it to their friend and companion and one of their own religion. All right, did I lose the crowd? Are you still here? Let me back up and repeat two phrases, one from John Gill and one from Bible Rep. John Gill, a pastor in the 1700s, says this law supposes that men should love themselves or otherwise they cannot love their neighbor. Then the second greatest commandment assumes an obvious fact of human nature that human beings naturally love and care for themselves. So the contention I would like to make that I believe we do see from this verse is that while it's implicit in Christ's statement that we do love ourselves and see ourselves as worthy of value, if that which usually comes natural to man is off or is corrupted by sin or by any number of things that may cause us to look at ourselves and to have loathing 
or to think I'm not worthy of God's love or I'm not a value as God says I am, it will then interfere with our ability to look at our neighbor and see them in a healthy manner as God would have us to do so. Do we view ourselves as worthy of care, acceptance, as having value? And I'm not talking about sin or a sinful state or refusing to come to Christ for salvation. I'm talking about, I guess, as a bottom line statement, do you see yourself as God sees you? Because God sees the sin, but he also sees a human being created in his image and likeness for which he was willing to die and for whom he loves very much and gave his son to pay for our sins. Another way we could ask this question is how do we define our life? What is our identity? What do we say? But what do we think? And what do we act like? We can come to the place where we believe that our identity, whether it's put upon us by others or whether it was put there from the age of a child or whether we've just come to believe it because of what's going on with us physically or mentally or what's happened in our life, we could come to the place where we look at our life and define ourselves as a failure, inadequate, incapable, or worthless. We are sinners, yes. Yet how does God view us? And do we agree? Does God view my sin as vile? Yes, He does. So I repent of it. Does God view my life and my soul as having enough value for Him to die for me and care for me and daily load me with His benefits? Yes, He does. So I should see myself in that manner biblically the way that God does so that then I will be able to love my neighbor as I love myself. And I would also say the words are in Scripture. I know it's not meant in a sensual type of way or elevating ourselves to be God, but Old Testament and New Jesus quoting, the text of God does say, love thy neighbor as thyself. In the same way that you love yourself and look to your own needs, love your neighbor and look to their needs. And if you don't see yourself as worthy of value or look to your own needs, then you're not obeying scripture as much as you would be if you neglected to share that love with others. What our identity is, how we view ourselves will manifest itself in our attitudes and our behavior. Do we have gratitude or are we filled with bitterness? Are we thankful every day for the time we have left or are we filled with crippling regret because of our past? Are we glad for what we do have or are we angry about what we do not? Psalm 16, 5 and 6, David writes these beautiful words, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. Verse 6. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. What does David mean by this phrase? The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. What it's talking about is boundary lines. It's talking about that as when Israel went into the land of Canaan and God said, I'm going to give to this tribe this boundary and then to the other tribe this boundary. It means this is your lot, your portion, your heritage. This is my gift to you. Don't try to move the boundaries, but be thankful and glad for what I gave you in your life. And all of us could examine our lives this morning and, and kick around the idea of where are the lines fallen unto me. What are the boundaries that God drew around my life and said, this is where you're going to live at this moment in history. This is what you're going to be like. This is what you're going to go through. This is your difficulties. This will be your blessings. 
David looked at all that in his life and he said, it's pleasant. I have a goodly heritage. I'm grateful for what God has given me. David here rejoices in what God had given him. He's saying, your sovereign goodness has fenced me into God himself. The borders of my life are boundaries around where God is. Well, God has given all of us a lot in life this morning, and he's drawn boundaries that are beyond our control about what our life will be like. We could start to compare. What's my life like compared to someone else's? What are my gifts, my trials, my abilities, my physical attributes? Some of the other things we'll list here in just a minute. And it's always a terrible thing to start making comparisons. Paul said they comparing themselves among themselves were not wise. It leads to nothing good because I can compare my life, my family, my career, my ministry, my whatever it is to someone else's. And in every instance, it's only going to lead to one of two things. I'll perceive mine to be better than who I'm comparing myself to and I'll get proud. Or I'll compare myself to someone else who I perceive to be better than mine and I'll feel inadequate and not pleased with what God has given me. So God's not given us the same lot that he gave David. My first thought is, boy, what a cool life David had. I sure would like to have all those things that went to David. But he also had a lot of trial. He also had a lot of heartache and sorrow. And it's easy to look at whatever it may be. For preachers, the struggle is comparing your ministry to someone else's across town at another place in time. And sometimes you look at the most famous people who preach to thousands and thousands. And it's easy to think, I wish I could have that ministry, that life, that. Yet many times you start to look closer. And what you'll find in any life is blessing, but also sorrow. Triumph, but also trial. And sometimes the people who God used in the greatest or most famous manner had some of the darkest trials and sorrows. So when you look around and start to compare yourself to someone else, it always leads to a bad place. But what leads us to a good place is when we look at Christ, compare myself to him and say, I'm a sinner compared to Jesus. To look at what I deserve versus which what I have which theologically, if we were honest, we will admit we are a sinner, which would mean that for all of eternity, we would deserve the lake of fire. So anything he gives me better than that is something I don't deserve that I can rejoice in. But I think all of us should be able to look and make a peace with certain things in our life to where we could look to God, not with questions, regret, guilt, or anger, but look to God and say, thank you, Lord, for the boundary lines you've drawn in my life. It's pleasant. It's good. It's better than I deserve. The heritage you've given me is a goodly one. And I can be at peace with it. What are some unchangeable facts about me and about you? Now, you could probably in our day and age come up with some way that you could try to alter them. But without some type of unnatural and expensive surgery, what are some things about us that are immutable, that are unchangeable, that are simply the way God placed us into this world? that we can either accept or we can complain about. My height. I'd like a little bit more height for the basketball games, but I've got what I've got. What is my natural aptitude? What are my looks? 
This would be things like my skin color, the color of my eyes, my facial features, such as the size of my nose, my ears, the shape of my head, my hair color, my natural body type, my complexion, the genetics that my parents gave to me, what I'm allergic to, a chronic disease or handicap. All of these things come down to God made me this way. And I can't change it even if I wanted to. Now for me being a preacher, another thing I would like to change about myself as I could is I would trade my voice for either one of two things. I'd take a voice like Alistair Begg's or maybe a British voice because everything they say in a Scottish or British accent just sounds so much more cool and interesting. Or even better than that, I'd take a voice like Fabian's where I could say, turn in your Bible and it would sound good and I wouldn't have to force it. I think that would sound good. But I could alter my voice, I could practice, I could change my inflection, I could do what I wanted to do, but there's only so much I'm given, okay? So I have to look at my life, my lot, my boundaries, the way I am naturally, and decide I'm either going to say, thank you, God, for what you gave me and the way you made me, or focus on what I wish was different and be upset about it. I have one daughter. I know she's going to grow up in an unrealistic world that sinfully mistreats and objectifies women. And over Instagram and magazine covers, they will glorify immodest dress and body types that are not really natural or maybe even healthy. And that's put out there as a signal. Look at this and compare yourself to it and see how it makes you feel. Social media as a constant influence, all the studies say it's pretty much negative for everyone. But teenage girls, their likelihood to want to consider suicide has a direct statistical correlation between how much time they spend on social media and the way they think about themselves. And I know for her, fatherly affirmation is very important. And she will view herself in a healthy manner more and more if, if I give her some of that affirmation God wanted me to give her. But whatever you got from your father or didn't get, whatever she gets from me or doesn't get, there is a heavenly father that will give us affirmation, Not again, not for our sin, but for the fact that he made us the way he chose to make us. And if he's pleased with his creation, then I can be too. Not viewing these things in a healthy manner can lead to so many different things. It can lead to an eating disorder. Afraid to even consume food in a healthy manner because a certain level of uh, a weight has to be maintained in order for you to feel good about yourself. Or it can lead to not caring for your body at all. Or to obsessing about your body. All of these things can be unhealthy. There were Bible colleges in the 70s where the Bible colleges were started by megachurches and the pastor of the megachurch said, you all need to go build a megachurch. And if you just work as hard as I do, then you'll be able to do it. And they would preach and say, if you sleep more than four hours a night, you're lazy and God's not going to use you. But God gave us one body and pretty much the only way to affect the performance of our body or the anxiety and stress levels we're under is sleep, nutrition, and exercise. And I'm not an expert on any single one of them, okay? But I'm saying we could view ourselves and our body as God's creation, as worthy of being cared for, so much so that I probably should sometimes sleep rather than walking around street preaching if I need the sleep to care for my body. 
Because by faith I say, Lord, let me do what I'm supposed to do as you would lead me to do it. And I have enough faith to say, I'm not the one who's supposed to build this church. Because Jesus said he will build his church. Or your job. Or whatever the goal may be. Okay? Let me give you a couple things that are funny. They're hilarious. Until you stop and think about it. And it breaks your heart. That's not a picture of an actual dog. Let me read you the news story. After shelling out nearly $14,000, the Japanese man has finally realized his dream of becoming something else, a dog. No, he didn't undergo a cosmetic procedure, but rather he spent $14,000 on a hyper-realistic costume of a collie so he could appear and walk like a canine. The unusual garment took nearly 40 days to create and has helped the man realize his dream of becoming an animal. On his YouTube channel, the man has posted several videos of him walking like a dog. The man can be seen frolicking on a lawn, rolling on a floor, and playing fetch just like a dog. He even took his first public walk wearing the costume, inviting off from people as he parades down a busy street. The video has raked up nearly 3 million views on YouTube so far. Okay, let me give you another one. An actual photo from an NBC News story that's talking about the new phenomenon of height surgery. At five foot seven, Alex considered himself short. So last January, he got a leg lengthening operation to increase his height to five foot ten. The $75,000 four hour operation, which is not generally covered by insurance, involves cutting the thigh bones in each leg and inserting rods inside them. Then over the next three to four months, the rods are lengthened by up to one millimeter per day via an external remote control. And then new bone grows over the rods. Physical therapy is required. For four months following his surgery, Alex went four to five times per week and used a walker. As he regained his mobility, he switched to using a cane. The final step of the process is removing the rods. Alex returned for that hour-long procedure a year after the first operation, and his insurance footed that $10,000 bill, but in total, Alex estimated the whole process cost him $100,000. Now we could look at those stories and say how ridiculous, yet we're living in a world where if you look at the way you were made and you look at the gender you were born with, and you say, this is not the right gender. Somebody somewhere made a mistake and you spend thousands of dollars to mutilate your body to try to be the other one. It's celebrated. And anyone who doesn't celebrate is called a bigot and hateful. And some states have laws on the books that if you'll go to your public school teacher and say, my parents are not affirming of what I claim my gender to be, they can come take the child out of your house. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed to him say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? In other words, if we look at our body as God's creation, we should be able to come to some sort of level of peace with our body and with who and what we are and not spend $100,000 to try to get three inches taller and walk around with a cane and physical therapy for months. What is all of that? It's rejection of God's creation and a failure to accept the way He made me. And it's not right, and it leads nowhere good. Let me go 
one step a little bit deeper here, okay? But beyond our body, the way we look, the way God made us. Let me consider some things that would come next under the category of circumstantial realities or time already passed or regrets or things we wish we could change that we can't. So allow me to be a raw for just a minute, okay? Maybe even a, a little bit of pain if it brings it to your mind, but let me consider the things that can throw off our view of ourself and mess with our natural ability to say, the lines are falling to me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. Thank you, God, for the way you've made me, for what I am and for where I'm at. Some could say, I'm saddled with sickness. My body hurts. I have physical limitations. We can't change the family we were born into or the way they act or the way they treat us. I have a lack of talent that I wish I had. I'm not married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have as many kids as I wanted. I didn't know my father. I don't have a good relationship with my parents and it's too late to regain it. I didn't raise my kids like I wish I had. I've been divorced. I don't have wealth or time to build wealth at this point in my life. I was hurt by someone. My opportunity for success was taken from me by another. I've been wronged. I wasted time in sin. I was saved late in life. I wish I could do it over. Someone has lied about me, misunderstood me, or mistreated me, or maligned me. And on and on we could go and put these things into the categories of unchangeable realities. Because no matter how consumed we are with the past, we'll never be able to go back. Is there sins in our past? Yes. Is there things people did to us we wish they hadn't? Certainly. But there's also just as certainly a God in heaven who's full of grace and love that wants whatever you've done, whatever you have, whatever you don't have, to come under the category of His mercy, love, and grace so that we could get up tomorrow morning on a Monday even and say, God, thank you for the breath I breathe today and thank you that you have a plan for my life today and that that plan is good. Help me to accept what you've given me and what you've not and what's happened to me and what's not happened and my dreams that didn't come true or did come true and be grateful and praise you. I told Melissa a couple weeks ago, we were excited about church and some of the new people coming and good things in our little church that are a really big deal that God's doing. And I said, by God's grace, I want to be so careful that my identity is not tied to the success of this ministry one way or another. Because we could preach the Bible and do everything God tells us to do. And whatever we do, I'm sure I'll look back 20 years from now and think I learned something. I, I would have done it differently if I could have. But we could do the best we could do and the church could explode and need the new property. But if that's my identity, then I'm taking my identity outside of a child of God who's dead with Christ in the cross that will raise and reign with Him one day and pride will creep in. Or I could do everything I could possibly try and nobody could come. And the rest of my life I could carry that as a cross saying, I didn't make it. I wasn't a success. But that applies not just to me or to ministry, but to a million different things to your career, to your family situation. What is your identity? It cannot be our success or perceived achievement. Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 24. And if you'll give me just a minute, I wanted to read verse 25 too, and I forgot to add that in there. So I'm going to pull it up here. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. 
Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come unto me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And you can mark it and read it or just listen here. Verse 25, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. In other words, if what my whole focus and drive in life is, I'm going to find my life. I'm going to find my identity, find my success. It's all about me. You're sure to lose it on the way to find it. But if you will lose your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel and give up whatever is selfish, whatever is self, whatever you care about, you're sure to find it in Him. John 10.10 The thief cometh not before to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The Greek word used for life in verse 10 is different than the word that was used in Matthew where it's talking about life like as the breath that you take in and out. The word is zoe. It has to do with the life which belongs to God and in Christ. Life real and genuine. A life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed in the portion even of this world, of those who put their trust in Christ, but after the resurrection to be consummated by new ascensions, a new body, and will last forever. In other words, the word therefore life means your deepest sense of identity and of self. And we find it in Christ by losing our selfish desires. Rather than seeking to gain them, this is the beautiful secret of the Christian life. If we are crucified with Christ, we will rise with Christ. If I put to death what I want, He gives me life better than what I thought I could have had. Our true identity in Jesus Christ is that I am a child of God created in His image and likeness. Here is the reality of the gospel, the beauty of each aspect of it. And if we leave one out, we're going to fail. My sin was bad enough that the Holy Son of God had to be crucified, brutally butchered on a cross to pay for my sin. That's how bad it was. But God's love for me and the way He viewed me was so deep that He was willing to give His Son to be butchered on a cross to pay for my sin. My sin condemns me, but the Savior's love covers me in His grace. And let me say this, God can write a better story than I can. This is God's church, not mine. It's really not ours. I have a vision for what I would like to see the church become, but if God wants but my goal is for God to show me what is his vision for this church. That means that sometimes we change things than what we're used to the way we've always done it. But if it's not unscriptural and it serves the body of Christ and it helps us reach people, then we're willing to give up what we wanted in order to see it happen. And I may have a script like the disciples had. Jesus is here. He's getting ready to, to take up swords, knock out the Roman Empire, sit on the throne of David. And Jesus said, yeah, yeah, all that's going to happen a long time from now when you don't know. But right now I'm going to go get slaughtered on the cross. They're going to come try to cut your heads off and most of them they're going to succeed eventually. But you'll go preach the gospel. But they didn't listen. So when Christ was in the grave, their whole script, their whole story was completely thrown off. And Peter said, I'm going back to fishing. That's what I did before. I failed Jesus. I said I didn't even know Him. I bragged, I'll never deny you, but I did. I quit. 
Because he was disoriented. He felt like a failure. He said, God can't use me. Jesus came to the seashore and called him back up and gave him a piece of fish and said, Peter, go and feed my sheep. Because Peter kept going forward on the day of Pentecost, he preached with power of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 souls were saved, baptized, and added to the church in one day and the world was shook for Jesus Christ. So what am I saying? I may have had my dreams, my plans, my vision, and I'm sure however much time left in life you have something But God can write a better story than even I can or you can. And our heartaches and disappointments can consume us or we can surrender them to the Lord and say, I trust you. We live in a fallen world. That's true. Sometimes our sorrows are just a a result of we live in a world that's touched with sorrows. But Christ can still intervene and say, I'll give you this or not give you that. I'll save you from this trial or I'll let you go through the trial. But whatever the case, I promise I'll go with you through it. So I can surrender my lot in life to God and say, I know I've got some things I could complain about, but I also got a whole lot of things I could rejoice over. And sometimes there's one thing that God said no. There's a hundred other things that God said yes. And Paul went to the Lord. He had a thorn in the flesh. It was a physical ailment. His body was being hurt. And he said, I want to serve you in the ministry, God, and I believe by faith you can heal this. So heal my body. This is the Apostle Paul, greatest preacher ever. And he went to the Lord and God said, nope. He said, well, God said, keep praying for it sometimes, so I'll pray again. And God said, no. And he went the third time and God said, no. So Paul said, okay, God, I'm going to live my life with what is hampering my ministry and my body in my own mind. But God knew that it kept him from being buffeted beyond measure by pride and his thorn in the flesh allowed him to humble himself and to look to God and to say, in my weakness, I'm made strong. It's not my talent or my strength that allows me to have success. It's God blessing me. And I surrender to what God's will is. I'm on the last half page of notes and I have about 40 verses to read. And I won't do it, okay? (laughs) Psalm 139 is beautiful. It speaks of the fact that God knows where we are. He's always about us. He's acquainted with our ways. He knows where we're at. He knows what we speak. He knows what we think. He's behind us. He's before us. He's protecting us. We can't flee from His presence wherever we go. God's there. He sees us. That's how much we mean to Him. He pursues us in our rebellion. He covers us in our perceived successes. David says, for thou hast possessed my reins. The word for reins was kind of comically to us, but a word for the kidneys. And they used it as a phrase, as we would say, the heart, meaning metaphorically the soul, the inner man. The word possessed means to procure, to purchase, to own. And the word The word covered means likewise to possess, to cover, to protect. And David said, while I was in my mother's womb, you claimed me, you covered me, you protected me, you knew where I was, you covered me, though the world could not see me. You saw my life and knew that it had value. I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. My body itself is a work of God. You may get up in the morning and it doesn't feel all fearfully and wonderfully made sometimes. But God says it is. And this is the message that our hurting world is desperate to hear. Not, 
Run from your parents if your parents won't affirm your sin. And I'll affirm it. I'll accept you. Be a dog if you want to be a dog. Whatever you want. You're your own God. Leads to nothing but emptiness. But knowing that I'm an image bearer of Almighty God and I have worth and value because He says I do leads me to a place of saying, let me obey His word and view myself the way He views me. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. You see, this is a metaphor for a baby developing in the womb of a mother. And back then, they didn't know anything about it. Now you can get a 3D ultrasound. You can see it all. But he was saying, God, we were not hid from God even when we were out of the sight of others and our body was growing and forming in our mother's womb. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect and in thy book all my members were written which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. Science now tells us that at the moment of conception each and every life has their own unique DNA. From the moment of conception, it is your code is all there that tells how high you're gonna tall you're gonna be, what your gender is. You, it's there. The word fashion means to form or to mold like a potter. So even in the womb of your mother, God fashioned your body. He oversaw sovereignly what your code would be, what you would be like, what makes you you. And He loved you then and He loves you now. This is beautiful. So then I can come to the place in conclusion to say God is good. It may not always be easy, but I can accept what He gave me and what He did not give me. Give me. I can accept the way He made me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's okay. And I want to say to you this morning, whatever it is that hurts in the eyes of God and from me telling you, it's okay. We do the best we can. All of us are sinners. We all have regrets. But God says live your life today and the rest of it knowing that I have a plan for you and my plan is good. And if your sin is in the past, then forget it and live under God's grace. And wherever we made it in life, whatever we came out with or didn't physically or circumstantially, God sees the pain and He knows the pain too. And I don't think He rebukes us for having the pain. But he does ask us to say, God, you are good. I'm your creation and your creation is good. Three more verses. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. I forgot those verses were in there. So three more verses after that. But those verses, those verses are talking about the thoughts of God towards us. His mind is on us. Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? One of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very head, hairs of your head are all numbered. And God knows how many hairs are on your head. I didn't mean to look at Jeff. I'm sorry when I said that. Not trying to pick on you. But what Christ is saying is He knows even that detail about you. He knows where you're at. And He loves you. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Read Matthew 6, 24 through 34 if you struggle with anxiety. Matthew 6, 24 through 34. A healthy view of self, I would define as knowing who I am, knowing who He is, knowing who I am in Him. And if that is healthy, if that is in balance, as Christ assumed it would be for most people, this will lead us to loving others who are created in His image and likeness as well. 
It's not about self-love. It's about sacrificial others' love like He has given to us. And we in turn give it to others. This leads me to a place of gratitude, acceptance, peace, and contentment. Knowing I am His creation, I am His child, I am His servant. And I will sing His praises as long as He allows me to. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank You for these people bearing along with me today. I'm sorry for the length that we have sometimes. But Father, as we have a time of prayer now and the music plays, everyone is invited to pray in your seat at the altar, whatever you would feel led to do, whatever you would like. May we surrender our lives to you this morning and allow you to write your story and give you glory and to love the creation and the circumstances you made when you made us. And let that turn around and not turn into a selfish thing, but let us love others like you loved us. Let's pray. Let the music play and let's continue in a moment of prayer.